Welcome to the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and then put into practice. I'm your host, Gwen DeSelm, and I am so glad to be able to spend this time with you today. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry and was the founding senior pastor of a church called Fellowship in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering help and hope to everyday pastors through coaching and other resources. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. Well, in our last episode in this series on the book of Revelation, we encountered a figure whose arrival on the world scene will kick off the final seven-year period of the prophetic timeline. He is known as the Antichrist, and today we're going to meet his evil partner, the false prophet. Are you ready to dive in? Let's join Dave now for Sealed or Marked. Let's take our Bibles and open them up to Revelation 14, okay? Revelation 14. Let's jump right into the text, all right? Then we'll back off and uh, kind of give an introduction afterwards, but let's jump right in. Following along, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, why don't you uh, look at the person next to you, okay? Say, hey, Dave said I could. Go ahead and uh, glance at them. Make sure you follow along. Chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live in the earth, to every tribe, nation, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. He'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I could start this morning by asking you a question. What were the most exciting five minutes of your life? Think about it for a minute. In your past, 
years of your life, what were the 300 most emotion-packed, exhilarating, breathtaking, 300 seconds of your life? What were they? Five minutes of your life. Got one in mind? I'd love to spend some time just asking some of you, what were those most exciting five minutes? It'd be fun to be able to find out from some of you, you know, these were my great moments of my life. I'd like to suggest, however, to you that a great case might be made for your first five minutes. Ever thought about that? The first five minutes of your life, think about it. After nine months of total darkness and isolation, you burst into a whole new world. You come into a reality that you never even dreamed of. And if if you could have talked, maybe your words would have been, Mom, Dad, I had no idea. I mean, where I came up was pretty confined and pretty alone. I had no idea how wonderful this was. Why didn't you tell me how wonderful it was? I hesitated for a while coming out. But this has been a wonderful coming out party for me. The first five minutes of your life were arguably the greatest five minutes. And I know what some of you are thinking. My life has gone downhill ever since from those first five minutes. I know that. First five, your best five. But I believe that's nothing compared to what I think will be the ultimate five minutes of your life. The ultimate five minutes of every person's life in this room will be the first five minutes after your heart stops beating. The first five minutes after your body hits the floor and you move into eternity. That has been the ultimate question that men and women have wondered for years. What will happen then? What will that world be like? What will my eternity be like? Eternity, by definition, a very, very long time. What will that be like for you? And let me just pause to say, that moment is coming for every person in this room, okay? You're going to have that five minutes. If you haven't noticed lately, the death rate in our country has been remarkably consistent over the years. One out of one Americans dies. And you're going to die. And I'm going to die. And when we do, we will have that first five minutes. And John says here in Revelation 14, those 300 seconds will either be 300 seconds of unspeakable joy or indescribable horror. One of the two. Did did you see the verses? Unspeakable joy. I had no idea. I kind of feared coming here. This is great. Or, oh, I had no idea. And to know that the rest of your eternity will be a continuation and acceleration of those first five minutes. That's what he says here in this text. And it all depends on whether you were sealed or marked. It all depends upon whether you are sealed or marked. We're going to talk about that this morning. Sealed or marked. Before we look at Revelation, I want you to hold a finger here and go back to the book of Ephesians. Real quick, hang a left, 
and go back, oh, about a quarter of an inch to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. I want to speak to you real quick here about this first and the seal of God, God's seal of approval, I call it. The seal of approval that God gives his people. And then we're going to talk about the mark of the beast this morning. Do you have Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1. This is wonderful theology here. Let's look at a few verses in chapter 1. Verses 3 and following. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Down to verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, watch now, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Seal. The word has to do with, uh, back in that day, with a king's signet ring pressed into hot wax on a document. It would authenticate a document. It would guarantee a document. And Paul says, in effect, we have received God's seal of approval. We've received his seal on our lives. And as such, it says, you belong to me. A seal signified ownership. A seal signified protection. It also is your down payment on heaven, it says here. So this is the first time. Every one of you who has come to Christ, you've been sealed. See, I don't, I don't see anything. No, God has sealed you. And his seal is upon you. Now with that in mind, we're going to head back to Revelation and we're going to stop off at chapter 7 before we go to chapters 13 and 14, okay? By way of review, we've been trying to timeline to some extent this great end-time scenario. We know that there'd be a, a seven-year period of time. This seven-year period of time would begin with the rising of this one called the Beast or the Antichrist, he who would seem to be the consummate problem solver and peacemaker. We said as well, he would make a covenant with the nation of Israel, and he would secure their borders, and he would allow the construction of their temple. We know that at the three and a half year mark, he would break that covenant with them, and he would demand to be worshipped. He'd set up an idol of himself in the temple and demand that the Jews, and in fact the whole world, worship him. This, we said, is what triggers the great tribulation in which God's people will be persecuted for an indeterminate length of time. The epicenter of that would appear to be in Israel itself, but the ripple effect would go around the world as believers would be persecuted, demanded to, to worship this image of this beast. Jesus said, and the reference was Matthew 24, that these days they will be cut short. Unless they were, he said, everyone would perish. But they will be cut short by a terrible cosmic event, which we said was God's sign, which we'll read of in just a moment. After that sign, God's harvest would take place where the church would be raptured up to heaven, and then finally God's wrath would be poured out on the world. 
And to contextualize this for you, you have Revelation chapter 7, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Let's back up to chapter 6. Look at verses 12 to 17. This helps to keep this in mind now. Back in Revelation now, 6, 12 to 17. I watched, John said, as he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. This is the cosmic event. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The church is taken up. The wrath is poured out. Now we come to chapter 7. We already saw in chapter 14 this number called the 144,000. Who are they? All right. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land, the sea, or any tree. I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. The identity of the 144,000 in the book of Revelation has been a matter of tremendous debate for years. One cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, think that it's them. They kind of ran into some problems, though, in the 1930s because all the spots were taken. So they kind of twisted their theology a little bit more, and it is a pretty twisted theology, and they said, well, that those 144,000 get to rule from heaven, the rest of people get to rule on earth, and they kind of had to change their doctrine accordingly, but that's not what it is. There are others, and here I'm talking about solid biblical scholars who believe the 144,000 are literally members of the Jewish race, that is to say... 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel will become evangelists to evangelize the nation of Israel after the church is taken up. So here's how this scenario teases out. The sign in heaven, church goes up, 144,000 now start to evangelize Israel itself as God hopes to make one last harvest among his people because he still has a soft spot in his heart for Israel as a nation. Okay? I, I could go with that. that that's reasonable. Another group of scholars see this as sort of a flashback to chapter, uh, to midway through the three, it's the seven years. That is to say, the 144,000 is us. And the reason why they say that is because we don't have a literal 12 tribes here. The tri aren't, they aren't the literal 12 tribes. So could there be symbolism? Could we be the ones who have been specially sealed to be protected during this very difficult time of persecution? Could it be us who are the 144,000, our spiritual Israel, if you will? It could be. And it could be that God is saying, before the wrath comes, I will especially seal you and protect you. Yes, I'll take you off, but you will go through a time of persecution, and I'll protect you during that time 
in special, special ways. Could be us. We don't know. We don't know. Either way, I think we can get, friends, some great insight as it relates to the fact of the pressure that will be on earth to cave into Antichrist. We're going to talk about that today. The pressure to cave into this leader and the provision that God makes for us. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take just a moment to rate, review, and subscribe, and then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. You can also support us in this ministry. Just go to davedesellministries.org and click on the donate button. Dave DeSelm Ministries offers resources for everyday pastors so they can equip the everyday people they lead to become everyday disciples. And one of the ways that we do that is through the Everyday Pastor blog. In each post, Dave offers practical insight and personal experience born of over 40 years of pastoral leadership. This blog covers topics everyday pastors and leaders need to strengthen their skills sharpen their vision, and care for their souls. You can find the Everyday Pastor blog on our website, davedeselmministries.org. Now let's return to Dave and the rest of today's teaching. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 13 at this beastly leader to come and we said, what's he going to be like? And we tried to paint a picture of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, the first half of the chapter. But one of the questions I'm typically asked is this, who do you think he is? And do you think that he's alive today? Who do you think the Antichrist is? Believe me, there have been theories down through the years. Here's just a few. Top candidates for the Antichrist. Nero, Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, John Kennedy, Henry Kissinger. Remember that one? Ronald Wilson Reagan... The reason being that there are six letters in each of those names, and someone said 666. Mikhail Gorbachev, any idea why he would be it? This mark on his forehead, remember that? That birthmark that had to be it. Saddam Hussein, Yasser Arafat, Prince Charles. I received a packet this thick two years ago from a group of people who believe that it's Prince Charles. Bill Clinton and Bill Gates. I even saw one that had it, Barney the Dinosaur. Believe, that's true. True. Uh, they, they kind of did the math. There's all kind of speculation as to who this one's going to be that's going to arise and assertions of when he's going to come. Listen to this. Quote, There is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. Firmly established in his early years, he will, after reaching maturity, achieve supreme power. There's no doubt he's been born. How's that grab you? Now, before you get too excited, this was penned by a man named Martin of Tours, a bishop who lived in the 4th century. So I guess what I want you to see is be very, very careful giving in to some of these theories. Okay. But looking at this, what can we learn? Now let's go back to 14, which we read from to kick this thing off. This scene takes place in heaven. So if the scenario works that I've painted, the church now has been raptured. Now they're being described. 
John says, I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. And standing in Mount Zion with him was 144,000. If, if the scenario works, and for purposes of argument, let's interpret this as, this is us. Here we are, having gone through a time of persecution before we were raptured up. And now we're standing before the Lord. It says in verses 2 and 5, they did not defile themselves with women. Um, we need to keep in mind what that's saying. Probably the best way to understand that, that word of defiling themselves with women means this. It doesn't refer to having relationships within marriage or even uh, physical relationships at all. It has to do with being seduced by the Antichrist. John is probably saying, these are those who did not commit spiritual adultery. These are those who did not get in bed with the beast. These who, some of them were killed, but they refused, they stood strong. That's probably what he's saying here. The phrase blameless that you see in verse 5 doesn't mean they never sinned, but rather means they are not condemnable because uh, they have come to faith in Christ. Now, down to verse 9, because now we speak of a mark. There's been a lot of discussion about this over the years. Verses 9 to 11, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead of the hand, he too will drink of the wrath of God. What is this idea? That the beast, the Antichrist, will put a mark on some people. Well, let's go back to chapter 13 and keep reading there because that explains it a bit. Looking in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 11, I saw, John says, another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, now watch, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Here we see a second beast coming up. Most Bible scholars identify this one uh, by virtue of Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and 2010, this is the false prophet that some of you have heard about. The first beast arises as the Antichrist proper. The second beast is one who is going to be calling the earth to worship him. He's known as the false prophet by those references I mentioned, okay? The fact that he has two horns there, some of them see this as he's not quite as powerful politically, he's more powerful religiously. Incidentally, and we'll talk about this I think in a future week, Many believe that by this time there will be one great world religion. It'll be a mishmash of humanistic thought, not unlike emperor worship in the first century, where you could believe whatever you wanted to believe as long as you'd worship the emperor. Here you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as you worship the Antichrist. And every now and then we see people saying, let's bring all the religions together. You ever read about that? Bring all the religions together. Why do we have so many distinctives? Why are you Christians so narrow? Let's bring everything together. And that this is going to be this great world religion that bows before the Antichrist and the false prophet is the one who calls people to do that. Okay? Apparently he'll be satanically empowered. We read there that he spoke like a dragon in verse 11. Verse 13 to 14, look at this. He performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Hmm. But his best effect is yet to come. Look at verse 15. 
he was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Apparently he will animate this idol. And now this idol in the temple will speak and people will be amazed if we take this literally. During that time, the pressure will continue to grow for everyone to worship this beast. Verse 16. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Apparently, economic sanctions will kick in. Unless you are specially marked out as a loyalist to the Antichrist, you will be unable to buy or sell. And the pressure will grow. You must now worship the beast. You know, reading about that, again, people have a lot of theories, don't they? People think, that. do you think that system's in place? I don't know. Nobody knows, okay? And there are some who look at debit cards and credit cards and PIN numbers and think, well, maybe you read about, you know, hidden microchips. Is that what it is, hidden microchips and PIN numbers? We don't know. Be real careful buying into theories. All we can do is take the text here, and there will be some kind of economic pressure, it says here. In light of this, let me address something else. So I know some of you are thinking, how do I know that I won't take the mark? How do I know that I won't mistakenly take the mark of the beast? Some people say, I, I should throw away all my credit cards. Is that what I should do? How do I make sure that I don't mistakenly take the mark of the beast? You've wondered that, haven't you? I think we can understand full well here that part of God's sealing is to help us to have that kind of discernment. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 24 on the side screens. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive, notice that it says, even the elect, if that were possible. Okay? This is going to be a loyalty test. Back in John's day, it was real clear. Remember we talked about this. You must take a pinch of incense, go to the temple, burn it in a brazen altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. There was no mistake for first century believers. Either you will be a Christian, or you will say, Caesar is Lord. One of the two. No one had to wonder, is this wrong? They knew. I think the same thing is true here. You're not going to have to fear or wonder, gee, I hope I haven't already done it. God's seal upon you, as promised in Ephesians, not only identifies you as his own, it will protect you from this deception that is to come. Is that clear? So we are sealed by God. We are protected by God. Jesus said it will not be possible for us to be deceived. But there will be many people who aren't sealed who will take the mark, and the pressure will be great for those who are sealed to capitulate and to cave in. Now, as you look to wrap this thing up this morning, here's the question. Why would God do it this way? I know what some of you are thinking. I don't like this. I'm much more like another view of the rapture which says, we're going to miss all this stuff. Believe me, friends, I'm with you. And as we talk next week about this whole thing about the rapture and the timing of it, 
because I'm real late into this whole thing before I see it happening. If I'm wrong, and I could be wrong, there will be no one happier than me. And the whole way up, I'm going to go, I was wrong, that's wrong. <laughs> okay, really? My concern is, as I read the scriptures, and in conjunction with other biblical people, it's we are banking too many of our chips on the idea that we're going to miss all this stuff. And as I told you before, there are Christians who are dying all over the world now. To think that automatically Americans are going to miss this? Come on, who do we think we are? So if this plays out, and if the pressure comes, we still wonder, God, why are you doing it this way? Why not let us get out? Why not let us escape? Let me ask you a question, friends. Is there any possible practical reason why he would have us stay? Huh? Is there any reason why when the pressure continues to grow, let me ask you this, is there any historical precedent where believers who stayed in the midst of persecution made a greater difference than those than if they would have been taken out of it. Is there any biblical precedence for that? Is there? Sure there is. The whole book of Acts speaks about that. In the early church, though it grew in the first 25 years, it never grew beyond the immediate environs of Jerusalem until persecution hit. The church was scattered. And in the pressure and the pain of persecution, the church exploded but only when it was triggered by persecution. This seems to be God's pattern. Persecution has an incredible purifying effect on the church. It is a remarkable way where in the darkest of times, the brightest of light is seen. And in this back, backdrop of gloom and doom, Christians will shine like diamonds. And God says, in my economy, in my economy, I will make a greater harvest in your staying than in your going. And I think God knows what he's doing. There was another cadre of Christians who believed this. Some of you are students of history, and back in the mid-17th uh, century, the rule of Oliver Cromwell in England, Cromwell sought to destroy the British monarchy. He began by executing King Charles I and decided that he would divest England of any traces of monarchy. Targeted in that was the Anglican Church, of which the king was a symbolic head. Cromwell emptied the churches, closed the monasteries, mocked the clergy. He did everything he could to marginalize the church from English culture. If you were a believer during Cromwell's England, it was a dark time. In the midst of that terror, there arose a cadre of Christians... One of them was a man named Robert Shirley. And Robert Shirley and his friends determined that they would stand tall and speak boldly no matter what Cromwell threatened. And today, if you would go to England and stop by a place called Harold Church in Staunton, you would read this inscription, this wonderful inscription on the walls of that church. In the year 1653... When all things sacred were throughout the nation destroyed or profaned, this church was built to the glory of God by Sir Robert Shirley, whose singular praise it was to have done the best of things in the worst of times. Look at that last line. 
whose singular praise it was to have done the best of things in the worst of times. The worst of times for Christians have always been the best of times for God. Perhaps the greatest Christian who ever lived came to faith as a result not of a believer living but dying. Do you know who it was? It was Paul. And this man who so sought to mock and destroy Christianity held the coats of a group of fanatics who determined to single out one guy. His name was Stephen. And Stephen stood tall. And they picked up the rocks. And Stephen testified to Christ. And they laid their cloaks at Paul's feet. And they began to chuck the rocks and throw the rocks. And Stephen went to his knees. And he went finally face down. But before he fell, it said his face was like that of an angel. And Stephen died. And Paul, Saul then, saw him die. And he never got over it. And within a matter of weeks, Jesus Christ put his hand upon Saul and said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? You know what those goads were? How Stephen had died. And Saul fell to his knees and received Christ as Savior, changed his name to Paul, and became the greatest Christian who ever lived. But it all was begun because of a Christian who God in his economy realized would gain greater value by dying than by living. I don't know what's going to happen. Okay. I don't know what's going to happen. I see Revelation as being pretty literal. I could be wrong. A lot more symbolism could be there than I think. I could be wrong. But I want us to know that whatever comes our way, I want the testimony of this church and this people. Oh, friends, how I want it to be. There was a church in Fort Wayne that arose in the midst of it all. And those men and women determined that they would do the best of things in the worst of times. And if, in fact... The time comes when we're forced to stand tall. I believe that God's grace will be enough. It said Stephen's face was like an angel. And incidentally, one more thing. Very interesting when you read it in Acts 7. Especially when comparing it where it said that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Notice this in Acts 7. Stephen said, I see the Son of God standing. Could it be? that the seated Christ stood to welcome Stephen home. It says also in the book of Acts in chapter 13, a great line about King David. When he had served God in his generation, he fell asleep. Friends, this is our generation. This is our generation. And whether we live or whether we die, this is our time. And there will be people in your family, in your school, at your place of work, and they will have their first five minutes in eternity. 
and all that stands between the most horrific horror of their life or the greatest joy they ever could imagine, all that stands there is whether they'll be sealed or marked. And we are the ones, we are the ones who have the message. We are the ones who seek to live lives of consistency and love and to model Christ and to share boldly. And even though we're awkward and we're afraid, we realize the stakes are sky high. And this is our generation. This is our chance to win as many people as we can. And then to say, God, however you want me to go out, we'll have a bunch of people next to us and we'll say, Lord, I brought some friends. But we'll see those friends face the horrific first five minutes. Do you see how important this is? This is huge. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. Thank you so much for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSalm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.